Today at Strade. What a day of racing that was, Strada Bianca, on the white gravel roads around Siena, Italy. And the Tour de France on Netflix. There's a new docu-series, eight-part series coming to Netflix next year. We'll be speaking with Daniel Benson later in the show about that. But first, we are talking the gravel roads of Strada Bianca. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, here with Jim Cotton, who is just back from Siena himself, where he was covering the race. How are you, sir? Good to see you, Jim. Ciao, Ben. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, yeah, straight off the plane, pretty much from uh, from Pisa, uh, full of cappuccino, gelato, and pasta. And so um, I'm pretty happy, and I saw some good bike racing as well, so... Yeah, it was. A, it was had a nice little whistle stop trip to Italy. It was a fantastic weekend of racing. You know, many of us enjoying from the comforts of home the performance of uh, Bogacar and and the rest on the the white roads in around Siena. The the finish there is just spectacular too. So I want to want to talk about the want to talk about the race itself. But first, you you threw down some uh, some some bold statements in a column recently about ranking where Strada Bianca sits in relation to the other older classics. And so I, I want to, let's, let's, I want to hear your, your rankings and we can talk about where our colleague Andrew Hood ranked him. He was also there in Cena for the races. He's still on, on the race circuit. And then I'll put in my, my two cents from the peanut gallery. So, you know, of course we've got the monuments of cycling are the, you know, five of the oldest, most prestigious events Strada Bianca is not one of them. It's just been going a few years now, but it's a cool race. Got a lot of attention, got our attention. So where does, where does, where should Strade fall, Jim, in the, in the hierarchy of one day races? So this is, this, I think many people will agree, but a lot of people will maybe get angry, but that's fine. Uh, so the, the official gym ranking of the kind of the biggest classics and monuments so there's no topping Paris-Roubaix. Paris-Roubaix comes first, and I think I don't think anybody can disagree with that. I will. But what what come? Oh, Ben, you you disagree already? <laughs> oh yeah, well, you go ahead. You go we'll, ahead. We'll, we'll come, come back. back to that. We'll come back. We'll come back to that. Meet me first. I, I need to make my argument. Uh, but yeah, Roubaix first, and then after that is where it normally tends to get a bit hazy, according to who you're speaking to. But I personally would put uh, Strada second, then Flanders. And it's people often would put Flanders second, uh, and then I put E three classic, what? which is not a, not a monument at all. No, it's not not a monument at all, and it's uh, got a different name like pretty much every year. It, it's basically like the mini Tour of Flanders. Uh, it's it's got all of what Tour of Flanders has, but it's a lot shorter. And then yeah, and then Milano San Remo, which some people think should be towards the bottom, and then runs through get them Amstel Omloop. Liege and the other ones. So bumping many a monument well down the list. Eddie Merckx is just shaking his head at you in shame. Yeah, well, just because it's a monument, that means it's old and understandably it's got the history and the prestige, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily the most watchable because I, I, my ranking is based more on watchworthiness rather yes. than prestige or kind of historic clout yes and that that is where i put my rankings that's where i think or everybody if they're honest with themselves puts their ranking like what are we actually interested in as fans to watch milano san remo the finish spectacular the entirety of the race it's ambient it's melatonin it's it's created back when races 
were covered exclusively in newspapers. And, and that was, I think, a good format for capturing a, a seven-hour bike race. You know, you can read about it in 15 or 20 minutes. Or now, we'll tune in to watch, you know, as they're coming in hot to the Poggio and then the finish. But as far as watching the entire race, yeah, well down, well down on that list. Exactly. There's, there's a website called Is Milan San Remo Exciting Yet? For, for a reason. <laughs> uh, it basically, it clicks from no to yes uh, in like the last kind of 8K when they get towards the, uh, the Poggio. Oh, so this is like a real-time thing. Like, is it exciting yet? Mm-mm. Are you awake yet? Nope, still sleeping on the couch. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like, is it snooze time or is it the most, the most exciting 15 minutes of the season time? And it, it flicks over. Now, speaking of old lists, you, you listed that, as you said, the infinitely older and marginally wiser Andrew Hood, his top three. And he put down Perry Roubaix, Tour of Flanders, and then Strada Bianca, number, number three on the list. Now, he is not here to defend himself or his list. Um, so we won't throw him too far under the bus. But let me let me put my my top three out there. I would say Tour Flanders, as far as like what I'm interested in watching, either in person or on the internet on the computer, the Belgian World Championships of Tour Flanders. Every time, every time. Number two, Perubay, and then yeah, Strada as as the third, based not on you know, decades upon decades of historical significance, but something that I'm just excited to watch and eager to tell others about and chat about. So that's my, that's my three Flanders, Roubaix, Strata. Interesting. I think though, what it, what that does show is that all three of us agree on the three things that make a race exciting, which is that kind of combination of Flanders, Roubaix, and Strata. And, and the reason why I would rank Strata so highly, and I think, the women's race potentially had it a bit more in abundance uh, this weekend, just gone. But it's just the the combination of it's got the climbing, it's got the gra- it's got the gravel, like unpredictability, kind of like you get with the pave uh, of Roubaix. Um, it's got the amazing scenery. But I think the thing for me that makes a big difference, and the reason why it ranks above a lot more a lot of the monuments, is because it's the men's race is like 190k which is about it's about an hour and a half less racing so the, and because of the kind of the unpredictable nature of the racing the racing is on like from a lot earlier than a lot of the monuments and it's more it's more kind of millennial dual screening keep <laughs> your attention keep your attention tv it's more of a more of a peaky blinders than a sopranos you know oh you've sold me there peaky blinders is love that show <laughs> I think it's the Nick Cave soundtrack that that, uh, that really seals the deal for me. So if we get Nick Nick Cave soundtrack for Strada Bianca, then yeah, I'm in. I'm 100% in. We could bump that to the yeah. top of the list. Uh, I think Strada Bianca would have to be some sort of Tuscan uh, folk band, but uh, <laughs> I think maybe with a with maybe with a Nick Cave influence over the top, I could I could get that. Yeah, get some some violins in there. Yeah, so it's like you said, the racing is racing throughout. There's not uh, hour, two hour, three hours of parade. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a spectacle. Yeah, and another thing that those three share, as you mentioned, is the unpredictability based on road surface and weather, um, which kind of leads me to another point I want to talk about of of like where is the line of 
where should the line be? Or is it even possible to specify where the line should be for how dangerous is too dangerous? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves as fans, danger is part of what is so thrilling about bike racing. And we certainly do not wish harm to anyone. We hate to see people crash. But watching women and men fly down the Alpine passes or through narrow little roads in the Dolomites or up and over the cobbled bergs in the rain, that's thrilling to watch. And, and part of it is because they're expert handlers doing something very difficult and dangerous, right? Or a sprint finish. It's, it's beautiful and kind of scary all at the same time. And you know, if we eliminated, if, you know, the general, we eliminated all the points of danger and made it say like a non-draft legal triathlon on a enormously wide, flat open road. And it was just a, a measurement of strength. It would be boring. It would not be bike racing and no one would watch. So, so, so what, what say you to that, Jim? And that's just a kind of wide open thing is, it, you know, we've been seeing, you know, writers or, or directors like Patrick Lefebvre of Quick Step saying, you know, gravel has gotten no place in bike racing. It should be on pavement. This is, this is just, uh, not, it's not silly, but um, it's unnecessary danger for the point of spectacle. And it's not what the sport of bike racing should be. I, th I think there is a, a slight sort of caveat on what people say and when they say it. I think that a lot of people, like, so Remco Evanapol has come out about it recently since he lost time on uh, an early stage race. I can't remember which one it was now. And Chris Froome has kind of come out, like, talk, said that he's not massive fan of things like gravel and bike racing either. But I think when people speak about it like that, they're more speaking in reference to, say, Grand Tour racing, where uh, three weeks of racing could be derailed by perhaps more, say, a puncture at a bad time, which sees you lose, let's say, say five or six minutes. But the, 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 the fact of Lefebvre calling out things like gravel, I think is just a bit is kind of an anomaly because obviously he is the you know the head of the pack that crushes all these classics that Casper Asgrain, his rider came third this year and his rider Alaphilippe has won it before um but with regards to danger i don't think any well obviously nobody wants to see it and this year in in strada there was a huge pile up which you know dictated a lot of the race um Julian Alaphilippe kind of landed really hard on his back and that sort of put him out of position and kind of well obviously very uncomfortable for the rest of the race so so for those who didn't see it there was a big gust of wind when they were on a gravel section there was alpacin phoenix rider whose wheels got caught by the wind and because there is so little traction relatively little traction on gravel as, as compared to tarmac is he just kind of lost control of his bike uh fleet was quickly behind him had nowhere to go piled into him and there was it was pretty spectacular um, flip to save himself. That's a good, good crash technique. Um, but yes, yeah, so that crash was arguably caused by weather plus road conditions, right? Like if that was on pavement, that almost certainly wouldn't have been the giant pileup that it was. You know, some were like coming down wet cobbles. If there's like one rider slips a little bit on wet cobbles, that's a different story than on wet asphalt. That's that's just the whole part of the whole beauty of the sport so to speak isn't it is that you're racing in in the open air you're not racing in a, in a, a kind of indoor velodrome you're not racing on zwift and it's uh, people who are against that sort of unpredictability or 
risk element of the unknown if you were to cancel it all out well you almost couldn't without taking it inside and you would lose the whole a whole huge part of the sport like this this it was it was windy in strider when i was there on saturday and you know that's just that's just nature that's the way it is and some people could argue that it was more the fault of the fact that it was on gravel but if that was a dry clear day that pileup probably you know a couple of riders might have gone down for some reason but it wouldn't have been the 20 or 30 that it was and i think you know having gravel in bike races it whenever there's a gravel stage in a grand tour it's the stage everybody gets excited for people love strada predominantly because of the gravel and i think having mixed surface racing is you know it's the way forward and it's it's one of the ways that the sport attracts a new audience for sure and as a fan you 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 don't know what's going to happen when right if you know sick you know throw up compared to like Mary that we're just speaking about you know you can tune in for the poggio <laughs> because nothing's going to happen before then right with with a race like flanders or roubaix or strada where's the key move going to go you you don't you can't call that out weeks in advance um in part because of the the variability of the course so totally i think i think that's why those those our top threes are in different order but this, this is the same three races so and you could you know, make the same case about you know fans crowding in around courses sometimes they'll do dumb things cause accidents uh but for the most part knock on wood it's it's pretty incredible that uh racers can be within inches of of you know, hundreds of thousands of fans over the course of a year, millions of fans, arguably, uh, and not be brought down. So, and as we saw during the the section of the season, two seasons where races were behind closed doors, just like racing without, uh, you know, racing in the velodrome is not racing out on open roads. Racing without fans is certainly not the same as racing with fans. So, yeah, I guess it's one of those conundrums we have to live with in bike racing so come on ben what was your take on the actual racing itself then how how give me give me your give me your hot takes on how good tade pogachar is exceptional exceptional my t- so my take is twofold one the pre-take okay there's no wow that's a bummer no wow van art uh no matthew van der Poel, no tom pitcock um so it's always a bit of a bummer uh, when those heavyweights aren't there. Um, Pitcock being the lightest heavyweight ever, um, but you know what I mean. Um, it watching Tade just waltz away from the world's best, including Ala Philippe. And granted, yeah, as we were talking about, Ala Philippe had, had just had a chase back from a crash, so that had certainly taken something out of him. Um, but watching Tade attack Alaphilippe on Alaphilippe's prime territory, you know, a short punch of hills, that's that's where Julian likes to go and often does, right? And so watching Tadei do that with Julian right behind him, it's not like he was caught at the back of the pack. He was right there and had nothing. <laughs> and uh, just watching Tadei roll away, uh, it was a show of dominance. I would be curious. I mean, what, what do you think your take was? Was was it a matter of hesitation from some of the riders at the front? Like you, you close it, you close it. No, well, it's 50 K 
as as a big group, well, of course we'll bring it back. Was it that sort of hesitation that allowed the gap to go, or was it simply Hulk smashing and no one having an answer to it? I think it was, to be honest, it was mostly just Hulk smashing, to be honest, because Quick Step sort of rallied and started pulling pretty hard quite quickly because they had a number of a number of options and basically it was just one of those days where a rider is on fire and it's just absolutely unstoppable and i mean if the the fact that walton matthew vanderpool and pickock weren't there was a big shame for the race and it would have been interesting to see how it would have played out with those three who were well maybe with Pitcock in uh, parentheses is, but you know, uh, Van Art and Van der Poel are undoubtedly the two big one day racers along with Alaphilippe. So, not having them there puts a bit of a caveat on it. But I think what the result shows and the way he did it just proves that Pogachar is, you know, this kind of one in a generation rider who can crush Grand Tours. And now he's won <coughs> Liege, uh, Lombardia, and Strada, which is the three biggest hilly classics of the season, arguably. And the way he can win these races is just like something else, really. He's he is uh, people compare him a lot to to Merckx, which is perhaps a lazy kind of comparison, but it you, there's no other rider like that at the moment uh, in the sport, and it's incredible. And unfortunately, he was so strong on Saturday that he had almost made the race a little bit boring <laughs> towards towards the end because it sort of didn't ever look like he, although it looked like he was fatiguing at the end, it, it never really looked in doubt once he'd got about a minute. Um, but it was it was a huge result. Um, I think it could be, you know, one that will be remembered for quite a long time. Yeah, I agree. And it has to be a bit demoralizing for his competition yeah so what's boring for us when it's you know that much of a blowout uh has to be discouraging for the rest of the favorites when they're realizing oh yeah we're racing for second here (laughs) yeah yeah i was speaking to because i did um i did the first day of the Tirreno adriatico which is like the the italian stage race uh yesterday as well and i was speaking to a couple of sport directors uh about you know, what they think they can do in reaction to Pogacar. It, more more so in Grand Tour racing. I, I spoke to somebody from, from Movistar and somebody from Bahrain and um, they basically, they, they, they know that they can't really do anything about Pogacar and they, they don't, they were saying that they, rather than thinking about how to contain Pogacar or how to beat him, they just have to focus on what they can do, like what's within their own control. But as you said about the demoralization thing, the thing is, is it's only March. His big goal is in July. And although he wanted to peak through the Ardennes Classics, which is more later in April, and he will like kind of let let him, his legs cool a little bit through the early summer. Is he's still got a long way to go. He's still, you know, for this year, he's got a lot more peak to find. And he's only 23. You know, most most uh, riders peak when they're 27, 28. So in the whole curve of things, there's there's a hell of a lot more room for improvement. But just, just the last thing I think on Pogchar is, what me and Hoodie were talking about while we were on the race, um, Andrew Hood, was that 
at the moment, nothing's really gone wrong, Pogacar. So first season, he came third in the Vuelta. Second season, he won the Tour. Third season, he won another Tour. Uh, and he's not been injured. He's not had any huge, you know, Roglic-style disappointments or um, he's not really been faced with any big scandals other than a few doping questions last year at the Tour. But when something does go wrong for him, which it will do, unfortunately, eventually, either an injury or he'll not win the Tour, is how he responds to that, like how he can handle and come back from that, I think will be the real interesting kind of kink in the story of Tade. That will be interesting to follow. And it, thus far, his setbacks, he has handled with uh, remarkable ease and good nature. You know, like this famous come from behind time trial victory the day before and even the morning of, he didn't really seem all that stressed. <laughs> you know, so who, who's to say what, how he will face future uh, difficulties? But his like Labrador happy-go-lucky attitude seems to 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 benefit him as well. And so what what I'm hearing you say is is Tade is not only in top form yet this year, but we certainly haven't seen the best of him in his career. So in theory, in theory, yeah. So yeah, hold on to your hats, uh, everybody else in the peloton. Um, yeah, it could be another ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim Cotton, well, get some rest. Thanks for the work over the weekend. Certainly enjoyed the coverage, and we will check back in with you soon. Now we're going to jump over to Dana Benson. Tour de France on Netflix, coming in May 2023, according to Daniel Benson, who recently broke a story on just that. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm good, I'm good, I'm tired, but um, yeah, good, I'm good. So a few days ago, uh, you spilled the beans on this eight-part miniseries that's coming to Netflix with a number of Tour de France teams involved. Uh, many listeners may have already read bits of that, but I'm um, hoping you can walk us through what we should expect to see. You know, starting with the, the teams, we've got, what, eight world tour teams, Jumbo Visma, EF Education, Quick Step, uh, Groupama FDJ, Enios, AG2R, Alpacin Phoenix, and Movistar. Now, how were those teams selected for this upcoming Netflix series? That, that bit of information, I still haven't figured out, um, and I still haven't got to the bottom of it. I do know that there's obviously, you know, that, that Netflix came in and they did have a certain set of teams they wanted to work with initially. Um, and you know everyone will look at that list and think where is uae team emirates because obviously they've got the the two-time tour, tour de france, france winner today yeah, yeah pogachar today pogachar on their team they turned down the project um and they've confirmed that to us so i don't know how many other teams were in a position whereby they were offered a place at this table and they turned it down or if it was just uae and they're the only ones that that walked away from the offer or not um, I do know that there was a few other teams that were rumoured to be involved or potentially be involved with it. Um, Bora was one of them. But as things stand, it's those eight teams that you've mentioned. So Yumbo, EF, Quickstep, Group Armour, Ineos, AG2R, Alperson Phoenix, and Movistar. So yeah, uh, seven World Tour teams and Alperson Phoenix. Now, who is the target audience for this? Like, Are Velenu's readers going to be stoked on this? Will it be speaking to them or will it be like a more of a 
I don't want to say dumbed down, but like more of a general audience focus to how this is presented. Yeah, I think that's the the one thing we're still not sure about. Um, yeah, there's obviously been a lot of comparisons with the Drive to Survive um, series that ran on Netflix, All or Nothing as well, that's on Amazon Prime, which obviously looked at the, the NFL and, and the Premiership as well. Um, but I think what, what fans need to, you know, hardcore fans, fellow news audience need to need to maybe look at is just, you know, taking a step back and thinking, is this for us or is this for a broader, wider audience that, you know, maybe you're more casual about their, their cycling viewing. Um, so maybe they watch the Tour de France or maybe they watch maybe a little bit of the Spring Classics now and then and they've got a rough idea of, you know, who Tadej Bogacar is or what who rides for EF, for example. Maybe they know a little bit about Ineos and Sky from the last 10 years or, you know, they grew up in, in the US, you know, and they watched through the Le Monde years and the Armstrong years a few, a few years after that. So, but I think that the target audience is going to be obviously, you know, they're going to be as broad as possible. We had 200 million subscribers, I think, on Netflix at the moment. That's the number they're claiming in the documents I've seen. So that's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to be, you know, they're not going to know how many seconds today Pogaccio won the Tour de France last year. They're not going to know the the gear ratio he rode up, you know, certain climbs with. I mean, I don't know what they are e- or what they are either, but I think that the premise will be to construct a narrative that brings in the biggest base and audience possible. So that's, you know, maybe dumbing down things to a degree. And they're going to maybe have your narrative where you've got your the good guys, your bad guys, your heroes, the ones you root for, the ones you don't. Maybe it won't be as nitty gritty and go into as much detail as we would like to see as, you know, hardcore cycling fans. But at the same time, I think you know, from a broader perspective, it's going to be really exciting. I mean, you know, it's a Netflix production um, with box to box involved. You know, it's going to be high quality stuff. If you look at the the shows that we saw on, with Netflix, with Movie Star the last couple of seasons, They've been really well received. So if it's going to be similar vein to that and give a good insight and have a little bit of drama and be based around a set number of teams, then I think it's I think it's going to be a winner from the from the viewership point of view. I agree. I, you mentioned the Movistar series. There was you know two seasons of that. El Dia Menos Pensado. I really enjoyed both of those for the insider look, and I felt like that was something that you know hardcore cycling fans could enjoy for seeing maybe some more nuanced uh, details to stories they're already familiar with and, you know, drama during the racing. Um, and then, you know, that could also appeal to people who had no idea who movie star was before they started watching the thing. Similar to you know, myself watching the drive to survive. I don't know anything about formula one, but that insider drama was, was pretty captivating. So having that access, I mean, what, yeah, maybe you could tell us this, what sort of access do you think, Netflix, or do you know that Netflix has asked for? There's going to be some stuff before the race even starts. Is that the idea? So you can get to know the characters before they're at the tour? Yeah, I think there's roughly, I think, 12 weeks of filming in total um, um, based on the documents that that Bellonese has seen. So there's going to be um, a block of time before before the race. And I think even Patrick Lefebvre confirmed in a blog with Newsblatt last Saturday he's opening the doors to the quick step service course this week so they're going to be doing a little bit of filming there they'll probably follow through with that with a number of teams if not all teams over the next few weeks and months and then obviously they have a big block during the tour when i think it's two or three people from netflix will follow each and every team throughout the race 
Um, and then there'll be a segment where they, you know, after July, where they go and interview, interview the individuals, you know, the winners, the losers, the team managers, just to kind of recap of what we've what you've seen during the tour. So there's a really big, big sorry, sorry, there's a really big broad spectrum in terms of timescale that they're going to be filming the characters, and that and that's going to be great for the whole narrative. Like you're going to see riders talking and team managers talking in you know march and april about how they're building up and how things are going and then you're obviously going to get into the really kind of deep heavy stuff where it's going to be a lot more intense and a lot more exciting when it gets through to june and july and then obviously that look back at you know towards the end of the season where they're looking back at how the season went and perhaps hopefully teeing things up for for the next series that's going to come out in 2024 what i really enjoyed it one of the things i really enjoyed about Odia minas pensado was how it was real, at least to my ignorant judgment. And that, you know, many of these writers we've heard speak, we've spoken to many of these writers, but their responses are often pretty, fairly scripted, right? Uh, where they've all had media training and they know how they're supposed to respond. And that's all fine and good, but it's more interesting when they're off script, right? <laughs> and and that, that's one thing I really appreciated was how the team just you know, let the... Netflix crew seemingly have full access when they're on the bus yelling at each other. You know, that is not media coach scripted uh, talking points. That was, that was good uh, work, work talk. So I'm hopeful that, that this tour series can capture some of that, you know, not that you want to see people fighting necessarily, but, but just the, yes, the raw. You do, you do, you do, you do. <laughs> we all do, we all do. Yeah, but no, just like the real raw emotions, what wherever you know the cards let them fall where they may. You just want to see what's what's going on inside the the machine, and that was like in such a contrast to say like a you know Team Sky Enios where you know there's things happening behind the scenes, but you're getting the you know, very carefully scripted responses as to hey, what happened today? Well, and you get a a pretty vanilla response, you know. Yeah, and I think that I think what the 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 movie star documentary showed in in a, in a sense was that I think for the perception from outside of movie star, you know, especially maybe in the English speaking press and 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 fan world, was that maybe they weren't the most charismatic or interesting team, and maybe they didn't kind of portray themselves truly as to what they were like in terms of characters and individuals, but they trusted that process when they made that documentary. And that's a big ask for a team. You know, you're really kind of jumping off the, off the, you know, the top diving board when you do that. And it worked really well because you saw like, these weren't just robots. These were just real human beings with real emotions. And there were real relationships within that team and dynamics that you kind of could guess about and you could kind of presume about, but you really saw the, the bare emotions at times. And I think that that's, that's the one thing that you can pretty much guarantee with this documentary. You're definitely going to see the, the, the real reality of what it's like on that team bus. Whereas like you said, in the, in the mix zone, very much scripted. You might get the occasional rider that like, lets the guard down right after a finish and, and gives you a great quote. But in reality, most of the time when the press officers around, you know, it's all kind of stick to the script or be quite guarded. Don't give away too much about the game plan. Whereas, you know, Netflix documentary, you can't really say, you know, let's turn off the cameras now. Let's not shoot this. It's all there. and It's all there for everyone to see. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I will not ask you 
to divulge your sources as to where you got this information, but I appreciate Never. your journalistic chops and getting it and sharing it with the rest of us. I'd also like to thank uh, reader Mark Pace, who reached out to Daniel and I saying, hey, could you guys talk about that uh, bit on the podcast? So yes, we did. And, and thanks for that request, Mark. If any of you other listeners have any requests or questions, by all means, holler at us. My email is ben at velonews.com. Daniel Benson, Editor-in-Chief of Vela News. Thank you for your time, sir. It's up. I'm, I'm your host, Ben Delaney, and you've been listening to the Vela News Podcast. Mm-hmm.